Hi, you're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network, produced at 3CR Community Radio on Wurundjeri Country. And I'm Nikki Stott. The UN has declared 2022 the International Year of Fisheries and Aquaculture. Today on the show, we highlight the importance of the small-scale fishers movement by bringing you part one of a webinar that was recorded last year by the World Fish Centre. This webinar features small-scale fishery spokespeople from around the world and challenges dominant one-sided environmental narratives by centering the alternative narratives and knowledge systems of small-scale fisher folk themselves. So I'm Kate Bevett. I'm a communications specialist with World Fish and I'll be moderating the session. We're here today to talk about new positive narratives on small-scale fisheries. We have a fabulous lineup of speakers today coming from all across the world and bringing a lot of diverse experience and really deep insights and important knowledge to this topic. The power to communicate about small-scale fisheries really carries a serious responsibility and we have to wield that responsibility with great care. And that's because words and actions and voices at different scales, be it at global right through to local scales, can have first-hand and real impacts on communities that depend on small-scale fisheries. So we do have to be really responsible and ethical in the way that we communicate and really support and contribute to new positive narratives so that we are contributing to the dignity of the sector and having positive impacts. Now we might just head into our presentations and our first presenter will be Nadine Nembhard. She's the General Secretary of the World Forum of Fisher Peoples and also an Administrative Officer at the Caribbean Network of Fisher Folk Organisations. And she'll be speaking with us today about lifting up positive narratives about small-scale fisheries. Thank you, Nadine. Thank you. My name is Nadine Nembhard. And I live and I work in Belize, Central America. I'm here in the capacity of the General Secretary of the World Forum of Fisher People, and I'm very pleased we are speaking about the new positive narratives of small-scale fishers. So I just wanted to go back and give you a few points about the WFFP for persons who are not familiar with this organization and this movement. It has been in existence since um, 1997. Founding members were from Delhi, India, and, and that part of the, the world. So um, we are about 23 years old, I would say. And it was founded on small-scale fisher people organization from the Global South. And we represent uh, over 10 million small-scale fisher including, of course, our indigenous people from coastal and inland regions. And we cover about 54 countries from all continents. And with our allies and our partners, I know WFF um, Edith is here. We, we joined hand and we 
we were instrumental in advocating for the, the voluntary guidelines for security for securing sustainable small-scale fisheries in the context of food security and poverty eradication. So that was a big win in 2014 for us small-scale fishers and organizations. I want to acknowledge our comrade T. Peter. He was the leader of the organization, the, the small-scale fisher organization in India. But regretfully, because of COVID, he passed. He, he passed away due to some complication developed um, from COVID. So this is one of our, our leaders. We, we give special recognition and acknowledgement. So we pay tribute to him. And so we have what we call the blue economy. And there are a lot of stories and narratives about perhaps how great and big and good the blue economy economy could be for all. We had six member countries in Asia conducting a blue economy tribunal. So this started last year. Well, previous to that, but the tribunals itself, the research and the studies started maybe in 2018. And what they did was that they studied about 50 communities and they brought this now to a tribunal this year. For example, in Sri Lanka, 600,000 people in Sri Lanka will be affected by one single port development project. And then in Bangladesh, there's a large chunk of an island that will be turned into a special economic zone. And this alone will affect 3.2 million people. Then in Thailand, the Grand Grand Thai Canal connecting the South China Sea and the Indian Ocean. This will create havoc to both nature and millions of people in, in China. Indonesia, the new omnibus law that was in 2020, this could lead to displacement of 8 million fisher households. And this is to provide space for new industries and existing industries such as tourism and other development. In India, they have this one specific port project. It will affect 10,000 fisherwomen. And this project is just a little fraction of the projects they have under what is called a Blue Revolution project from the government of India. So it was shocking and, and it created um, alarm for our membership because they now have evidence and they have documentation to show how our members are being displaced under certain situations created by the blue economy. So what we are doing to respond and, and give a positive narrative for small-scale fishers, first, we, we conduct research study so that when we speak, we can come with facts. So small-scale fishers, they remain excluded from decisions affecting their lives and territories. So our lives are put aside sometimes to foster the development of, of other industries. And so some of our communities, when our members are protesting and voicing their concerns, Sometimes they are militarization and they are repressed. When they are exercising their traditional practices, 
and their human rights. They are pushed back. And this is because of some corporate organization being greedy and having a capitalist approach and de developmental projects. And we also look at um, gender equality and it's worsening and the climate crisis is definitely deepening. So what we hear as an organization and a movement, a social movement of small scale fishers, we recognize that we are the majority. And together we can shape the future of small scale fishers to protect and unprotect our nature. Um, I want to draw some attention to some work being done by the CNFO that aligns with our topic of presenting new positive narratives and, and changing the narrative and the outlook of how fisher folks are perceived. If you know me, you know that I am from the Caribbean and I represent the Caribbean region. We have 17 member states, so countries like Jamaica, Belize, Haiti, Trinidad and Tobago, St. Vincent and the Grenadines, St. Kitts and Navy, St. Lucia, all of those come under an umbrella organization of which I represent. And what we were trying to do last year, we did a social media campaign in collaboration with partners. We had the University of the West Indies, Sermes, um, working with us to help and push out positive narratives. So we had 44 Fisherful influencers and they came on on the, every Wednesday. We did this for six months. Every Wednesday we featured a, a strong, talented, skillful fisherwoman. And on Fridays, we would feature and give acknowledgement and praise and a story about a fisherman. And we had other positive narratives that we were pushing to try and present some of these new narratives that we are developing in small-scale fishing communities. So this campaign raised awareness, definitely. Our Facebook was not active. If we had 100 followers at the end of this campaign, maybe we had 300. Everything improved in, in terms of percentage by two, 300%. Um, people were starting to see our stories. We did newsletters. People were eager to hear what news we have now from the CNFO, what's coming. It, it started to build interest and our stories and narratives were being placed more assertively and aggressively in the, in the social media space. So what we have done, and COVID, it created this opportunity for us last year at WFFP. We are so far apart all over the Caribbean Sea, the Indian Ocean, and sometimes it's difficult to connect um, due to language barriers, um, location, and everything else. But last year, we had to figure a way to continue our work, even under hard times. We hosted... In the year 2020, at least 15 webinars for our membership. And each webinar, our members were very interested. They came on to the sessions, and we had from 50 to 150 participants at each session. And we had to have languages sometimes, depending on how large and big. Interpretation of over 10 languages, it got so complex, but it worked. So. We gathered our members and this is for them to engage with each other, um, exchange ideas, give life to the WFFP, 
inform us of the direction that we need to go. And especially regarding the narrative, what narratives we want out there in the public spaces. And so in these sessions, we, we met and we were discussing a very important topic and how the WFFP should engage in the UNFSS, the Food System Summit, to understand the narratives that were outside presented to the public domain and how we fit into that and what narratives we as fisher folk organizations want to present. And so our membership came up with ideas of how they want to engage in such a, um, a summit or, or a system or a process. And those were the types of things we were doing last year. So we had topics ranging from ocean grabbing, food sovereignty, inland fisheries, women and youth assembly, and so on. So that's the type of work we have been doing. And this capacity building information sharing and this education that have been going on, the bottom line is at this topic, it is for us to present ourselves to the highest regards with of upliftment and any negative or any connotation that is not presented positively for us to, to show the other side, for the, the public to see the, the other side of the coin. In Belize, we have a saying, we have dialect in Belize, but it goes maybe in English and maybe you know the saying, fishermen never say if fish stink, meaning that if you are directing how this narrative will go, you would not criticize yourself. You would only show the positive. And so that is the stage that we are at. We have been doing this forever, but it's time now to push, push back, push out these stories from small scale organization. So we have a, a ban, a Gilnet ban that got enacted in November of last year, 2020. I am from Belize. Depending on where you are, depending on the type of illness, will determine how detrimental or not it is. So I'm not here to give you any information on that. I'm just presenting what is happening in my country. And the public, even people in my family, come and say that is a good thing. I have very close family like living in my house thinking that that's a good thing because the only image, the only story they are hearing is a one-sided story, a story, a propaganda that is on the TV all day. You turn on the news, there is a, a five minutes or three minutes clip on why we should ban Gilnet. And these are coming from maybe some environmental groups, a lot of people in the tourism industry, and they have caught some fisher folk to supporting this idea. And what the Belize Fishermen Cooperative Association is doing is presenting another side to the story, explaining to the Belizean public it is not as bad as being presented and the fisher folk doing this activity are not criminals as being portrayed. So they're actually taking the government and I guess Oceana to, to court on this issue because even though a ban is not illegal. The process to, to arriving at that ban, the process of not adequately ensuring that those people that use the gillnet were satisfied and comfortably transitioned into a new gear or fishing activity. None of those elements were in place 
when the ban took place. So I'm saying you have to ensure that the people are properly transitioned before you implement such a harsh, harsh thing like a ban. So they did it reverse. They did the ban and now they are trying to work with people to see how they can effectively have them continue fishing. But then that is the reverse. Now the people, they had a sudden closure of a livelihood. So fishing is not just about making money, especially in Belize, we have indigenous communities like the Garifuna people who use fishing as a way of life. Fishing with Gilnet has been done from time immemorial from in the Bible. And these are part of your natural life. It is a part of who you are. So when you do something like that, it affects us tremendously. And I know that because I have a 17 year old son. His dad is a fisher, the granddad is a fisher, and I don't know it's something that you're born with because from the day he was born, that is all he wants to do, go on a boat and go fishing. And now I'm pushing him not to divert his dream, but to ensure that he has an education. But when you go to school, there is no such school as um, learning to fish except the skill that he learns from his dad. So the narrative also in the school system is not set up for us to appreciate and love the, the art and the work and the skill of fishing. So now he just registered for, for classes and the closest thing that looked familiar to being on a boat or fishing was the tourism. So he registered at the university, he's 17, so it's fresh um, level um, in tourism. Whatever he, he wishes to do is his desire, whatever. But my point is, this system is set up that we do not uplift and we do not look give recognition to this very important and we know how FAO gives value to fishing as a nutritious meal. The tourism sector said, no, we can go and look at that fish and it can bring, a, that one fish can bring a million dollars to us, but we cannot undermine the value of nutrition and how important it is to have a nutritious diet and fish is one of the most important meal that we can eat and um, the nutrients that come from fish it's good for our immune system it probably is helping us in the fight against covid it strengthens us so we know the the positive of the narratives that we should be sending for on, on our behalf, but nobody can do that except us small-scale fishers. We are the one who needs to take charge and send the positive new messages to the global world and to our public. Some of our slogans assert our rights, restore our dignity, and we have a lot of our women now being very actively engaged and pushing the agenda of the small scale fishers and pushing our narratives into the public space because our voices need to be heard. It must be heard. The coin needs to be flipped and you need to hear the other side of that story, how fishing is a way of life and the importance of being a fisher folk in the world. So we are the majority and we should shape this narrative creating new positive narrative, asserting our rights and protecting nature. 
currently the, the position we are at here now at, in the WFFP organization, we need to take evaluation, we need to take stock of all we have done, all we have said, because certainly some of our own same languages, it have been co-opted and we need to continue building up ourselves and building up new positive narratives. And this is in support of the people we work for, the people we represent, the small scale fishers of the world. Thank you, Nadine. So great to hear about the WFFP's work. And I really also like you talking about how we kind of have to come together and rally behind the fishers and the fish workers and lift up their narratives. So that's actually a really nice segue into our next presenter, which is Dr. Dehia Belhabit. She's the Principal Investigator at EcoTrust Canada. And she recently published a paper about decolonising science and advocacy work to drive real change, which had some really deep and important insights. She'll also be talking to us on this topic and also about minding one's privilege. So I'm pleased to hand the floor over to Dr. Dehia today. Thank you. Hello, everyone. I'm happy to see you here. So the initial title for this presentation was something around the lines of decolonizing science. And I wanted to make it really um, more towards the actual theme of the day, which is small scale fisheries and moving the, you know, beyond the colonial narrative. So as Nadine has mentioned, small scale fisheries are quite important. So they are, um, they provide food, livelihoods, income, but they do have some, and I don't like the word intangible, but they do have some intangible values associated with them as well that we do not tend to discuss that much in scientific, um, you know, and even documentaries in these kind of, of, of contexts. So a sense of belonging, you know, cultural values. She mentioned her son, you know, wanting to do that dreaming and wanting to follow through his family's tradition, you know, it provides social cohesion and spirit values among so other many things. It is not only about fishing for food or fishing for livelihoods or fishing for income. However, there is a huge problem associated with the colo this colonial narrative is that small scale fisheries are often put in the same basket in the same spaces than the industrial large scale sectors that a small scale sector is put together with the industrial sector by organizations such as the FAO when they collect their data. In fact, the process of collecting data does not necessarily allow for a separation between the two. And then you arrive on these international policy tables and you find yourself discussing, for example, subsidy disciplines. So how can we remove subsidies from both the small scale and the large scale sector? And I do remember one specific anecdote there where I did have an argument with a, a delegate from the EU or basically an ambassador at the World Trade Organization where he was, where I was arguing that we should start thinking about special and differential treatment for the small scale sector, meaning we should not take away their subsidies because they need those. At this point in time, they need those. And he said we should not start making exceptions. And I remember telling him maybe the exception we should make then should be your vessels from the EU fishing in West African waters that should go. And let's see how they're performing. I'm quite sure that we perform quite all right without any subsidies. So we are in a space right now where we think only about the status quo. You know, the gillnets that, that Nadine had mentioned, for example, you know, what if we think about that as the gillnets were used for, you know, many, many decades, years, hundreds of years. What happened after that was the industrialization of the fishing sector. That is what changed. 
those gill nets were always there, and I'm going to get to there to that as well. So there is an imbalance of power that is not captured with these policy tables or our narratives as researchers and scientists and advocacy efforts. There is also an economic power imbalance as well. We do know that 1% of the fleets around the world are actually industrial, but they catch most of the fish. And 25% is caught by those small-scale sector, which constitute you know, nearly 19, small-scale coastal sectors, which constitute nearly 99% of the fishing effort. So there are huge imbalances there, but it doesn't stop there. It's also about how we portray the solutions, you know, that we hear more and more often, like stop eating fish, it's gonna save the ocean. And I, I, I tag this as the greatest colonial quotes of all times, you know. We also hear something innocent, such as aquaculture is the solution. And I give a lot of power to words because that is what we're talking about today, these narrative that we need, narratives that we need to decolonize. And I'm quite sure that a lot of people would here would agree with me on this. The state-run marine protected areas, you know that objective of reaching 30% of protection of, um, you know, at least coastal spaces or EEZs in the world by uh, 2030, that objective to me sounds very colonial. Why? Because it stems from a space where a country like Canada, for example, takes a long time to consult with communities through the map to get into uh, where to place a marine protected area, how to place it. It takes a long time consulting with indigenous people, with coastal communities, settler coastal communities, etc. Imagine a country that does not have the capacity to do so. Imagine a bureaucratic or a dictatorial country. How would that show? That will illustrate itself. These 30% prestigious, amazing state-run marine protected areas will manifest themselves by top-down approaches through which coastal communities are not consulted, they are not included in the process. And when that happens, it tends to exclude them, as Nadine had mentioned again, from their you know adjacent waters. They lose agency, they lose the, the ability to fish, they lose the ability to connect with the ocean, but also they are criminalized through two processes. Either they become fishermen, illegal fishermen, so they're criminalized because they have no longer legal access, but they will still fish because they have no choice, or they will find an, an alternative form of livelihood and in many cases examples include drug trafficking and again they end up being criminalized a second time you've been listening to earth matters on the community radio network Today on the show, we brought you part one of a webinar that was recorded last year by the World Fish Centre, featuring small-scale fisheries spokespeople from around the world and centering fisher folk narratives. And if you miss part of today's show, you can find the podcast at 3cr.org.au forward slash earthmatters. And if you're already listening via a podcasting service... We would love you to subscribe. And why not rate us and give us a review to help spread the word? Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their generous support and the Community Radio Network for all their hard work in getting this show out to you. Earth Matters is produced at 3CR Community Radio in Fitzroy, Nam, and we can be contacted at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. And you can also find us on your socials. That's all for this week, but don't forget, tune in next week for more environmental and social justice stories.
Tune in to Billabong Beats Tuesdays at 11am with me, Gavin Moore, giving a voice to both Western Kulin and Kulin First Nations peoples. Join me to talk about philosophy and dreamtime stories surrounding the waterhole, the sacred fire, the land, the plants and animals. Billabong Beats, 11am Tuesdays on 3CR. There are many ways that you can keep up to date with 3CR news, events and programs. The 3CR website is a great spot to catch all your shows via audio on demand or scroll through our range of podcasts. It's also where you can sign up to our monthly newsletter, buy yourself a new T-shirt, or check out archival audio from past broadcasts. Of course, we're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But don't forget our mighty AM band. Catch us anytime on 855AM. Keep in touch, 3cr.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.